great God is here to speak to us this morning through his word, and I invite you to take that word, and in particular to turn to the second chapter of the book of Acts. As you know, Acts chapter 2 tells the miracle of the birth of the church at Pentecost, and in that great event there were mockers who assumed that uh, it was just a public display of drunkenness. And in the 14th verse, as Peter begins to preach his sermon, he silences those mockers and says, this is the coming of the Holy Spirit and the fulfillment of a prophecy from the Old Testament. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what is spoken by the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Yea, and on my men servants and on my maidservants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and manifest day. And it shall be that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray together once more. Father, would you come and be our teacher? Holy Spirit, would you be our counselor? Human words can only go so far. And then, if you don't work, nobody's changed. So come, Holy Spirit, and move among us here now and make the word applicable in ways I can't even imagine to meet needs that only you know. Come with power and may the word run and be glorified. Into your hands we commit our body, voice, May the meditations of this mouth and all our hearts be acceptable, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week I tried to show from 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 12 that the gift of prophecy is going to cease when Jesus comes back. When the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. And I drew out the implication that While the lights are burning in this age until the sun rises, they are burning. That is, the gift of prophecy is still with us. It's intended to be useful to the church until the Lord returns. It says back in chapter 1 that they were filled with the gifts of the Spirit waiting upon the Lord. Somebody sent me a letter this week to draw my attention to that said, see how they were waiting for the Lord, connecting the second coming with all those gifts. 
What I want to do this morning is begin with a little preface about the sufficiency of Scripture and the finality of the Bible as God's revelation for us. By that I mean this Bible with the 66 books, the Christian canon, as we call it. Nothing that I say today, nor have said, nor shall say about the gift of prophecy should be construed to mean that prophecies today would ever stand on a par with Holy Scripture. When a word of prophecy is given, it does not become Scripture. Scripture is closed and final. It judges prophecies. It is not added to by prophecies. It is a foundation, not a building in process. So I want to make that very, very clear from the outset. Now, the best way to see that in Scripture is to just compare the teaching of the apostles, which we now have in the New Testament, with the gift of prophecy in the New Testament. How did they relate to each other? An example is in 1 Corinthians 14, 37. It goes like this. If anyone thinks, this is Paul the apostle talking now, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. In other words, my word as an apostle stands as the criterion of what is passable as a claim to prophecy. That's the way it will always be. The apostolic word stands over any claim to be exercising a gift of prophecy and judges it. Another example, 2 Thessalonians 2 Verses 1 to 3, the situation here is that Paul is writing to this church because he's heard that they're in distress, they're shaken, they're worried, because some prophet, perhaps, came along and said, the day of the Lord is at hand, and they're all frightened. The reason I say a prophet might have said that is because in verse 1 it says that a spirit might have done it. Let me read it for you, and you can hear how Paul responds to this. First three verses, it says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our assembling to meet him in the air, or our sending to meet him, we beg you, brethren, not to be quickly shaken in mind or excited either by spirit, see, somebody claimed to have a spirit perhaps, say this, or by word or by letter purporting to be from us. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come, let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come unless the apostasy or rebellion comes first. Now, what's Paul doing? He's saying, I don't care if anybody's prophesied that the day of the Lord is at hand. I don't care if there are 2,000 people heading for Montana. I have told you what has to come first, and it's not here yet. Do you take my word or the prophetic word? You see how Paul uses his authority. Now, we have this authority in this book because the, the apostolic authority goes back and endorses the Old Testament for us. So did Jesus. And so the whole thing, all 66 books here, now function for us as a platform on which we stand. It's not in process of being constructed by a prophetic word here and a prophetic word there to which we add every now and then a little more information so that we know the nature of God better and His way in the world better. That's not the function of New Testament prophecy. So, New Testament 
Apostolic teaching is now found in uh, the Bible, and we have a sure word with which to test every claim that comes along to prophetic activity. I wanted to make sure that I announced that clearly at the outset, that scripture is complete, it is closed, it is sufficient, it is the test of all other claims. Now, let's go to Acts 2. Because Acts chapter 2 is is an epoch-making text and an, an amazing statement of fulfillment of prophecy that has a direct bearing on Bethlehem Baptist Church and the movement of God today. And I want you to see that and let you test my teaching against this word. You know the situation, 120 men and women gathered waiting to be clothed with power from on high, according to Acts 24, 49, waiting to receive power that they might be witnesses, Acts 1, 8, waiting, waiting and praying, according to Acts 1. And the Spirit comes like the sound of a rushing wind and with flames of fire. And they are all, according to verse 2, verse 4, filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages. But now, if you want to know what they're saying, you look at verse 11. And this is important for understanding prophecy because Peter's going to say in a minute that what's happening here is prophecy. Verse 11, some of the visitors to Jerusalem who are listening to what's going on here say, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So here they are, 120 people. And they are evidently extolling God. They're saying great things about God, about his character, about his attributes, about his love and grace, and about what he's done in the world and the exodus and creation and Mount Carmel and uh, the restoration of the Jews from Babylon and the sending of Jesus Christ and the busting open of the tomb and the exaltation of the right hand and he's coming again and they're just blurting out these glorious things about God. Now what is that? What's going on here? Verse 16, Peter gives his explanation. And this is terrifically important. I mean, this is an epic-making event here. He says, they're not not drunk in their ecstasies. Rather, what's happening here is epic-making prophetic fulfillment. Joel 2.28 is coming to pass before your very eyes. And he quotes it. In the last days, verse 17, in the last days it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Now, let's just stop right there and let that sink in. All flesh means the whole world of human beings. All the peoples of the world, not just the 12,000 that have been reached by the gospel today, but the 12,000 that need to be reached in the next few years. He's going to pour out his spirit all around the world. On all flesh, it's going to be in... A worldwide spiritual experience. Keep going. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So part of this outpouring will be marked by an incredibly widespread experience of prophecy. And he gives three categories of people that are going to be involved in this. First, men and women. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Second, 
Young and old, young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams. Third, high and low class. Men servants and maid servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit on them and they shall prophesy. So you got two highlights in that text. Joel has seen the end coming. The end begins to come right here in Pentecost and the spirit is poured out. And the first mark of the Holy Spirit's outpouring is unbelievably widespread prophetic activity. Not just an Elijah here, an Isaiah there, a Jeremiah here, a Moses there, but men and women, old and young, slaves and free, prophesying about the great things of the Lord. That's what verse 11 is. Verse 11 is a description of prophecy because Peter says that's what's going on here. It says it will happen in the last days. When is that? When are the last days? Remember back a few weeks we talked about that in detail? Well, Peter says they're now. This is that which Joel said in the last days. We live in the last days. If you ask, well, where are we in relation to the last days? What's after the last days? Well, what's after the last days is the coming of Jesus. We live in the last days, a long extended period of last days. Hebrews chapter 1, 2 says, In many and various ways God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophet, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son, so that the last days came with Jesus. Jesus is the mark of the last days. The Messiah has come. And he's reigning in the last days, waiting till he puts all of his enemies under his feet in the last days. And then the last enemy to be defeated will be death. And the last days will end with an eternal kingdom. We're in the last days. And I just am tempted to speculate a little here and just ask you to consider if the prophecy of Joel, as he looked into the future, he saw that the Holy Spirit was testifying in his own heart, there's going to come a day that's so different from this day. There's going to come a day when he's going to pour out his Spirit on all flesh. And one of the chief marks of that is prophetic activity. And then we see that at Pentecost. And today we have 12,000 unreached peoples. And we have lots and lots of believers who don't seem to even... Think about prophetic activity. It makes me wonder whether or not the last of the last days might be the time when this prophecy is really going to be fulfilled. The last days sort of got off to a good start at Pentecost, and maybe the last of the last days will really discover what this text is all about. When the all flesh is fulfilled in the world mission of the church, and the prophetic activity is fulfilled in what we're trying to dig out and discover in these days at Bethlehem. That's my inclination, is to think that that's what's going to happen. There are a lot of people thinking that we're, we're on the brink of an incredible worldwide revival and the completion of the Great Commission through unheard of numbers of third world missionaries and unprecedented quickening and awakening in mission circles and things like Eastern Europe opening unbelievable doors. 
and the power of God being displayed even among Muslim peoples in East Africa that nobody ever dreamed would happen among Muslims and things that I don't know about are going on, I'm sure. I think what we see here in Acts 2 is a confirmation of last Sunday's message. I argued there that when the second coming happens, the gift of prophecy will cease because the gift of prophecy is through a glass dimly. And when the imperfect, or when the perfect comes, the imperfect goes. And this text says that in the last days, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And on my men servants and my maidservants, in those days in which we live, according to the New Testament, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. And then the end will come and it will be over. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think that Joel, who first prophesied these words... And Peter, who first preached them, and Luke, who wrote them down for us to read, do you think those three inspired spokesmen meant that there would be millions and millions of people speaking with Scripture authority so that we should add their words to the Bible whenever they speak? Is this a prophecy that there will be people who have the right to write Scripture because they're speaking with verbally inspired utterances? Or is the prophecy here that this experience is on a different order than the verbally inspired, infallible utterances of biblical writers? Now, this morning and tonight, I'm going to try to make a case for that position, that the prophecy that is prophesied here that will happen to your men servants and your maid servants, your old and your young, your men and your women, worldwide, all flesh, thousands and thousands of people, is not scripture quality utterances, not verbally inspired speech that's infallible. That's my thesis this morning, and it's going to be tonight, and... Uh, I'm going to try to wind up with a crisp definition of this kind of prophecy tonight if you don't feel satisfied after this morning's message. I don't think the gift of prophecy today has the authority of the Old Testament writing prophets or Jesus or the apostles and nevertheless is real and is prompted by the Holy Spirit, sustained by the Holy Spirit, and does not have intrinsic divine authority. Now, one of the reasons this just kind of sticks in our craw, I saw it on Wednesday night, I felt it in myself, is that we don't have categories for this. I didn't grow up with a category for this. I didn't grow up with a category in my thinking for spirit-prompted, spirit-sustained, revelation-rooted, fallible speech. It's kind of... Contradiction. I don't have a category for that. Most people today in the church don't have a category for that. We have two categories. The category of true prophet, whom you obey at the cost of your life, or false prophet, who if he misses one time is to be stoned, Acts 18.20. Those are our two categories. 
And if we hear this strange thing coming across now, both, I think, in the Old Testament, as I'll try to show tonight, and in the New Testament, that doesn't look quite like that. It's not awful, and he's a false prophet, and it doesn't seem to be Scripture quality, inspired, infallible utterances that go down with Jesus and Paul. It seems to be something else. What is it? We, we, we must create a category for this. That's my conviction. Now, let me try to ask or answer this question. Somebody may say, look, if it's, if it's fallible, if it's all mixed up with human imperfection and error, and it has to be tested, and only part of it might be useful, my goodness, what good is it? I mean, it's just a mess. You get, it'd be more confusing and more misleading. I mean, let's just not even worry about it. To answer that kind of attitude, let me just ask you to compare the gift of prophecy with the gift of teaching. Both of them, they're alike in a lot of ways. Let's think about the gift of teaching for a minute. Uh, The gift of teaching is prompted and sustained by the Holy Spirit. I take it that's what a gift of the Spirit means. If if something is a gift of the Spirit, the Spirit is moving. He's doing something to, to make it happen and to make it good and helpful for the church. So the gift of teaching, when it's in exercise, is prompted by the Holy Spirit. It's sustained by the Holy Spirit. And we would all agree, I think, that it is rooted in an infallible revelation. That's the difference. One of the differences between prophecy and teaching is that teaching always is a spirit-prompted, spirit-guided explanation of this book. That's what teaching is. A received tradition which is the prophetic and apostolic infallible word now in the church by the gift of teaching is unfolded and explained for the edification of the church. But would anybody here say that it is infallible? That is the teaching, my teaching as a teacher in the church or your Sunday school teacher's teaching or any radio preacher's teaching. Is it infallible? It's spirit-prompted, spirit-sustained, revelation-rooted, and we would all say fallible. Is it, is it, does it have divine authority? Ask that question. Does, does the, the fruit of the gift of teaching have divine authority? And I think you'd probably say, well, sort of, but not, not the same way the Bible does. That is, it's not intrinsic. It's derivative. If it agrees well with this revelation, then it sort of takes on a secondary authority and it ought to be obeyed. But in and of itself, it's not the authority in the church. My preaching is not the authority in the church. This is the authority in the church. And to the degree that I come true with this and line up with it and get in step with it, then you will feel a a sense of authority coming through my teaching. And yet, even though it's fallible, and even though it is uh, imperfect, would any of you say it's therefore useless? 
Oh, we don't need teachers. Let's get rid of all preachers, all teachers, all radio preachers, all Sunday school teachers. We don't need that. It's just a mess. I mean, there's so much fallibility. There's so much imperfection. There's so much of their own humanity that gets mixed up. I mean, the attitudes that come through in their preaching and teaching. And I mean, it's just, what good is teaching? It's just a mess. Nobody in this room almost is going to say that. I say almost because I know one guy who said that in 1969. Keith told me, we don't need teachers. And he quoted 1 John 2. We have the anointing. We don't have anybody need to teach us. And that was his argument. Get, all, get rid of all teachers. Just everybody take the Bible and go off by themselves. Well, now, most of you aren't going to say that because you know that the New Testament gives teachers to the church for the edification of the believers. But why do you find teaching so helpful when it comes through such a sinner like me? Why do I get so many cards and letters? Why do people tell me all the time that their faith is built up by my preaching? When I'm so imperfect, I make mistakes, I get mad, I sin, I'm just such a lousy, no good person. You saw me come at that amen. <laughs> just, just the truth, right, in general. Just sort of in general. I love you. Now, where was I? Why do you find this so helpful? Well, I don't know, except that God appointed teaching in the church for the edification of the saints. And I just want to now compare it with um, prophecy. No, i got to ask one more question. You got me all shook here, Patricia. i got to ask one more question. Why, why is uh, prophecy or a teaching so uh, imperfect? If it's spirit-prompted, spirit-sustained, revelation-rooted, this revelation, why is it imperfect? And there are three simple reasons. You'll all agree with them, I'm sure. I'm a teacher, okay? When I open this book and perceive the infallible revelation, number one, my perception is imperfect. Number two, when I close the book and start getting out my pencil and paper and start thinking about the revelation, my thinking is imperfect and fallible. And third, when I get done with my perception and my thinking and start teaching, my teaching is imperfect and fallible. So this book doesn't get faulted. I'm the fault. My perception, my thinking, my delivery are all human through and through. And therefore, open to testing, correction, they're not infallible. And yet people get helped. We don't worry about it too much. People get built up. People get saved. Awesome. Now, let's just think about that in relation to prophecy. Prophecy is prompted by the Spirit. Prophecy is sustained by the Spirit. Prophecy, I'm going to argue more clearly tonight, is rooted in a revelation that is given by the Holy Spirit in the mind of the prophet. And God makes no mistakes. God never lies. Therefore, anything God says into the mind of a prophet is infallible and true. But now think about it. Suppose it's a slight, quick vision. Your old men will see visions. Suppose it's a vision. Or suppose it's just a, a thought that the Holy Spirit sows, a word. Well, three things have to happen before that hits the church. One, it has to be perceived. And we're already told. We see it in a mirror dimly. It's hazy. So the prophet perceives the revelation in his head imperfectly. Number two, it's thought about and he, th he ponders it and he ponders imperfectly. And number three, he speaks it out and he speaks it imperfectly. 
why do we jump to the conclusion that this will be unhelpful if teaching is not unhelpful? Now, the point I'm trying to make is that we need a new category. We need a category for spirit-prompted, spirit-sustained, revelation-rooted, edifying, fallible speech that needs to be tested and sifted. We need to get beyond the either-or category of false prophet who should be stoned, true prophet who should be obeyed without question. There is a third category in the Bible. When you weigh all the biblical material about prophecy in the Old and New Testament, these two categories do not suffice to make sense out of the Bible. That's my thesis this morning. It will be again tonight. Let me close by drawing your attention to the text where I get this idea of sifting. Any word that comes as a prophetic utterance needs to be sifted. I get it. From 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 22, where a very, very relevant word that hit me in a fresh way as Tom was teaching on Wednesday night about attitudes towards spiritual gifts, which you all could have been here. He took this text, which says in verse 19 of 1 Thessalonians 5, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, implying that they sometimes are very despicable, and the inclination of many people is to despise this thing. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. And hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. The reason I stressed everything and what is good is that this is not a test of prophets. It's a test of prophecies. The assumption here is that the prophet is genuine. The assumption is that he speaks some things helpful and some things unhelpful. And that's the new category that you need to create in your mind if it's not already there. A true prophet in the church, not even thought of in terms of the kind of biblical prophets that spoke with absolutely inspired utterances, with intrinsic authority, but rather another kind of speech, a vision, an idea, a thought coming to the mind, imperfectly perceived, imperfectly pondered, imperfectly delivered, useful for the church when properly weighed and considered. And what hit me on Wednesday night was the connection between don't quench the spirit and don't despise this event. Because I'll tell you, I've got enough experiences in my life to make me hate prophecy. Seven years ago when I was teaching on this, a woman in the church who's not here anymore came to me and delivered a prophecy. Noel was pregnant with Barnabas. Her hand started to shake. She says, this is the sign that I'm going to deliver a prophecy. And she wrote and she said, your fourth child is going to be a girl and Noel's going to die in childbirth. And that has happened to me several times. It happened to me two weeks ago again. I have lots of reasons to despise prophecies. 
And I believe with all my heart the Lord is telling me, don't despise it. My guess is I could match you story for story about why this is too messy to fool around with. I am not preaching my experience, believe me. I am preaching what I see in the Word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, many questions remain, but my prayer is that any who need repentance for quenching the Spirit by despising this gift would repent. Help us to repent. Make us humble, docile, careful, biblically obedient to the command earnestly desire that you may prophesy. Tonight, Lord, when we gather and Learn again. My prayer is that when we gather around John and Joby Morgan, that the spirit of prophecy come and meet us there. And that perhaps this afternoon you would bring to mind, in people's minds, a word for John and Joby Morgan that you want them to hear. Because I'm going to give an occasion tonight for anyone who senses that they have something for them to deliver it. Not in the kind of presumptuous or proud way that says, Thus saith the Lord, and you better do what I say or else, but rather the humble, I sense the Lord has led me to say, and now would you please seriously consider. Father, teach us these things. Grant it to have its appropriate place in the life of the last days of our church. In Jesus' name, amen.